Hi, this is Ron Darling. Uh, this is Skip Lockwood. Hi, I'm Ron Swoboda of the 69 New York Mets, and you're listening to Mets Musings with Gary Mack. Now it's time for some New York Mets baseball talk. Here's Gary Mack bringing you the latest news and analysis from Mets Nation and the world of baseball on another edition of Mets Musings. And hello and welcome to another edition of Mets Musings. Hope you all had a good week out there. Got a great guest for you for guest for you tonight. So we want to get to that as quick as possible. But of course, the big news making its round around the uh, the world of the New York Mets is the fact that. Robinson Cano has tested positive for steroids. <laughs> Goodbye, Cano. And he is suspended for 162 games. What a dope. <laughs> what what more can I say? Uh, one of the stupidest moves you ever want to see. He got caught again. Uh, this guy is not too bright and it, it makes you wonder, you know, um, all those years with the Yankees and then he, uh, you know, we won the, the batting, uh, not the batting title, but the home run derby one year with the, uh, with, uh, the all-star game and you wonder, was he juiced the whole time? I mean, it's not a good look. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I, I don't have any compassion for the guy. He's a guy that, uh, you know, uh, had a rep, had a reputation of uh, of being a little bit of a lazy player. He says it's so he could play in all the games, but. You know, it just seems like uh, he 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 wanted to get his money, and uh, now he's not. He forfeits one year, $24 million. He'll have two years on his contract when he comes back. If he comes back, I think the Mets uh, should really... Uh, go to him and, and negotiate some sort of buyout on this contract because, uh, you know, it, it, it's really, I, I don't think they want him back. And I wouldn't take him. And I think at this point in time, if he's not going to get paid this year. So why not go to him and, uh, you know, try to negotiate a much smaller amount to buy him off next year instead of uh, the forty-eight million, maybe you could settle for half of that or something. Uh, you know, the league, the league would, uh, the union would have to agree to it. But I think, considering the circumstances, it would be pretty difficult not to uh, not to see it the Mets' way, and uh, you know, 
cut the Mets some slack and and get them the heck out of here. Uh, stupid move. He, he's a veteran. He should have known better. And again, uh, this probably kills any chance he might have had to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, didn't think he was a Hall of Fame player, but uh, you know who knows? There were people that uh, thought he was, and this will kill it completely. Two-time loser with the steroids and out for the season is one Robinson Cano. Opens up a lot of possibilities for Mets. Andres Jimenez could go to second. Luis Galorme, who hit this year, uh, could play second base. Rosario Rosario could stay in short. Jimenez could go to short. Rosario maybe could move to second if they wanted to try that. They could trade Rosario, maybe put Jimenez, Gilorme. They could move McNeil to second permanently, which is probably his best uh, defensive position. Lots of ways the Mets can go. They could try to sign DJ LeMayu, though. He's looking for a five-year contract, and that would make him 37. I don't know if I want a 37-year-old second baseman when you got these young guys that are eager to play and, and prove that they could play at this level. So, uh, But that'll all shake out now. In, in the wash, uh, Cohen got an early, uh, the new owner, Steve Cohen, got an early Hanukkah gift. Uh, by having an extra $24 million to play around with now. So we'll see what direction the Mets decide to go, but uh, that's the big news. In, in other news, uh, Noah Syndergaard has begun throwing off of the mound as he showed a video on his personal Twitter account. It's a positive step in the rehab process for Syndergaard to underwent Tommy Jones surgery back in March and will likely miss at least the first couple of months of the 2021 season while fully recovering. Uh, you know, he may not be. Uh, most pitches aren't in top form after returning from Tommy Jones surgery the first uh, year. Uh, but, you know, he could uh, he could bring a boost to the rotation just by being healthy, and they could use the other arm. Um, the other bit of news is that Theo Epstein has left the Cubs. What does it mean? Who knows? Could mean nothing. He said he wants to take the year off and relax, uh, do some summer activities, but... Uh, baseball is a funny game and ways of recruiting people and getting them back into the uh, the fold, if you will, uh, has a way of doing it. People have a way of doing that. So um, we shall see how far that lasts or uh, what that does. All right. Uh, let's go. Uh, we want to go to my guest, uh, the great Bill Madden, who's got a terrific book out on Tam, uh, Tom Seaver, and he is going to join me uh, right in just a second. So take it away. And joining me this week is a Hall of Famer. He's the famous New York Daily News columnist, sports columnist, and he's got a terrific new book out called Tom Seaver, Terrific Life. Uh, Bill Madden, welcome to Mets Musings. Good to be here. Uh, Bill, 
this book is uh, coming out in a few days uh, about uh, Tom Terrific, the uh, probably the greatest Met star of all time, and uh, he's a guy that you know very well for a number of years. Do you remember the first time that you met him? Uh, well, the first time I really uh, got to know him uh, was, and probably the, the reason why we had the relationship that we had, was in 1983 when uh, he was left off the Mets protected list for the free agent compensation draft, one of the most disastrous decisions the Mets ever made. <laughs> and uh, I was at the Daily News a couple days before the draft, and I got a call from uh, a friend of mine named Art Burke, who had previously worked in the commissioner's office. He was now working for ABC. And he told me, asked me if I was going to be writing about the draft on Friday. And I said to him, I said, well, I'll probably write something, but it's not a big deal because New York is not involved. The, the Yankees or the Mets hadn't lost any free agents. Mm -hmm. That was what the draft was all about. It was to compensate teams that had lost free agents. So he said to me, um, well, um, believe it or not, Bill, uh, the, the Yankees or the Mets may be very well involved in this thing. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I have information that the Mets have lost, have left Seaver off their protected list, left them off it. And I was like dumbfounded. I said, how do you know that? And he said, well, I talked to one of my friends over in the commissioner's office who had privy to the lists. And he told me the Mets have left them off. Mm. So I thought about that for a few seconds. And then he said, but that's not all. He said, the White Sox are going to take him with the first pick on Friday. And I said, how do you know that? <laughs> and he said, well, as soon as I heard about this, I called one of my friends in the White Sox front office and he confirmed it to me. He said that they're going to take him. They can't believe that he was left off the Mets list, protected list. So now I'm armed with this story and I had to get it confirmed, so yeah. I I made a call over to Jay Horowitz, and I told Jay, the Mets PR guy, I said, i got to talk to Frank Cashin. Uh, you got to get him on the phone for me. And he said, well, he's in a luncheon, Bill. And I said, well, get him out of the luncheon, because this is an important <laughs> I have sorry that I have to get confirmed. And Jay said to me, well, uh, you know, if you know Jay, he started stammering, and he said, well, Bill, uh, well, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I can't call him out of a lunch. You've got to tell me what this is about. So I told him, and I said, Jay, if this gets out, I will personally drive over to Shea Stadium and kill you. Do you understand me? <laughs> so anyway, he got cashing out of the luncheon, and I told Frank what I knew. And Frank said, um, he confirmed it to me. He said, Billy, I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, we, just, we just didn't think anybody would take him, a 39-year-old right. pitcher. Mm -hmm. All the people that are in the draft, there's prospects in there, there's established players that are still in their prime. And I said, well, Frank, I hate to tell you this, but I'm told that the White Sox are going to take him. Wow. So it was kind of silence on the phone. Anyway, he confirmed it to me. So now I have the story. But I still felt, before I went to print with this story, that I had an obligation to call Seaver. I didn't want to blindside the guy. Yeah. And um, so uh, I didn't really know him that well because I covered the Yankees, and he was, of course, with the Mets. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, I mean, he knew me because I was on the back page of the Daily News quite frequently back right. in those days because of Steinbrenner. <laughs> so he knew who <laughs> I was. 
So I called him at home in Greenwich, and I told him I told him what the story was, and he was very thankful. He was obviously shocked and upset, but he thanked me very much. And from that day on, uh, we had a relationship because I think he, I think he, it was no longer a sports writer slash player relationship because mm-hmm. I think he felt that I was more than a sports writer in his eyes. Because yeah. I was the guy that told him he was left unprotected, not the Major League <laughs> Baseball, not the commissioner, not the right. Mets, nobody but me. And I had the story alone. So yeah. uh, just, to, just to tell you, in context of today, this could never happen today. We held that story out of the paper until the last edition, uh, which goes off the presses at one thirty in the morning because we didn't want to give anybody time to catch up to us. At the same time, I'm holding my breath because... I mean, Cashin could have called somebody. Seaver could have called somebody. Neither one of them did. Wow. It was a miracle. It was amazing. And uh, so we had a clean beat on it. It was probably the biggest story I ever broke for the Daily News. And and today everything is uh, get the story first. And, and there's so many social media, Twitter would have gotten out easily. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been definitely out. Uh, uh, you could never have held that. We held that story for eight hours. Yeah, wow, <laughs> that's that's yeah. something. Well, the book is it's it's terrific. Called Tom Seaver, terrific life, and uh, it's it's kind of a shame that uh, he never got to write uh, his own autobiography. But uh, this is probably the most intense and the closest thing to uh, him writing one as you would see uh, with your familiarity with him and his family and and the friendship that you had um the book is really interesting i i recommend it to anybody uh, uh you really cover his life from beginning till unfortunately the end and uh it's just such a shame i know when I heard the news, it was so shocking that he had passed. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just I'm looking at the cover of the book as we talk. And it, it, such a young, vibrant uh, photo on the cover and everything. And that's the Tom Seaver we all remember. It just uh, it, it's so sad that such a disease took him. And and because of his, uh, you know, he was a... a, a he was a student of the game, uh, a cerebral pitcher, if you will. And to have this kind of disease attack his brain and mind, it's really sad. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, and you're right. Uh, this is the closest thing to an autobiography because of my relationship with him. And it, it kind of stemmed from uh, a documentary that I did on him uh, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what happened was, uh, the former sports editor, uh, former editor-in-chief of the Daily News, a man named Martin Dunn, uh, when he left the Daily News, he formed his own production company. And I was very close with Martin. And he came to me about, and this was around 2015, and he said to me, uh, he says, I've got this production company, and I'd love to do a documentary on Seaver and your relationship with him. Do you think he would be agreeable to that? And I said, well, I'll give, I'll give it a shot. So I, I called him, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised when he said, sure, come on out here. The only problem was, at that time, 
he was already having memory issues. Mm-hmm. And I've been told this, I've been told this by his agent. He said, you know, but just be careful, Bill, because he'll tell you something, then he'll forget all about it the next day. So we went through with this, uh, went around, I went around the, the block with him a, f- a few times with calls out there. And finally I told him, I said, Tom, I, I know you said to come on out, we'll do this thing, but I just want to be sure. I don't want to show up at the gate of your vineyard out there and you tell me, ask me, what the hell am I doing out there? <laughs> so um, with, a crew, with a TV crew. So I said, I want you to put Nancy on the phone because I want to make sure she's okay with this. So he did, and so that was it. So we went out and we did the documentary, and um, uh, it was um, he was so good. To, I mean, we went out there in 2016 and 2017, and we spent the good part of a full day each day out there. So probably a total of about three full days of, of taping and uh, filming of the vineyard and everything else. And I did interviews with Nancy and Tom, and of course we did interviews with all his friends at the Hall of Fame because I have a relationship with most of those guys. Mm-hmm. And we had all this stuff. And I will tell you, I was disappointed in the documentary. Uh, Ed Burns got a hold of it, the actor, and um, he uh, he left so much good stuff on the cutting room floor. It was really disappointing to me. So uh, the only thing was, you know. It, we had the I had the interviews and they're all exclusive and uh, they're extreme they're lengthy and uh, and and really good. So then uh, the in the uh, fall no it was I'm sorry it was in the spring of 2019 was when uh, the, the uh, Hall of Fame and the Mets put out this the statement that he had, was suffering from dementia and was dropping out of public life mm-hmm. and I was shocked but not totally shocked because right. i've been with him the previous year and the difference in his memory from 2016 to 2017 was like night and day he couldn't remember anything about his career in 2017 and i was so glad that we'd gotten so much good stuff from the previous year so anyway now he's got the dementia and Kerry thompson who's the former sports editor of the daily news and she was involved in this project as well the uh, documentary and she said to me she says billy now you've got to do the book because i they've been after me to do a book with him i didn't want to do an autobiography even long before he had the uh, memory issues i i just wasn't comfortable doing that um and um it would have been a problem because he he was having memory issues and, mm-hmm. and it was getting worse and worse so but now she said, you've got to do the book because you're the only guy that can do this book the way he, he would want it. I thought about it and I said, oh, well, it's not like going behind his back because he wouldn't know. I couldn't talk to him about it anyway. So. Right. And she said, and she says, I'll tell you something else, Bill. If you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. And you're going to kick yourself for not doing it. So that's why I did the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it is uh, terrific, and it's very thorough. And uh, uh, as I said earlier, you do cover everything, uh, even going back to his his childhood in Fresno. And he stayed very loyal to uh, his Fresno fans, uh, friends, I should say, and uh, that group of uh, you know uh, friends he had since childhood. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a big part of the book, the Fresno chapter, and, and uh, those guys are 
uh, a very those guys are a very big part of the book. Um, he, uh, you know, he grew up in Fresno, and uh, he stayed close with all of his friends. He played little league ball with and high school ball with. Uh, he invited all of them to the Hall of Fame when he was inducted in, in 1992, and they all came. And um, it's interesting because a, a few of them were better little league players and better high school players than he was. Uh, he was good. He was a good pitcher, but he was small. And he always worried about wh- uh, whether he was ever going to grow. And uh, he worried and a lot about this year after year because he never seemed to grow. And he was the runt of the family. He had two sisters and a brother. They were all, uh, his brother was over six feet and his sisters were both tall and they were all big athletes in different ways. Um, and he was a very good pitcher in Little League but and in high school, but he didn't have a fastball because he was so small. He was already back then. He was learning other pitches and learning how to study batters' tendencies, and just like he became famous for when he got to the major leagues. And um, when high school was over, he got no offers, uh, scholarship offers, and his his friends all got scholarship offers, and he didn't. And he told his parents, he said, "Look, I am not going to go to college on your dime. If I can't get into college on my own with a scholarship," then I'm just going to have to figure out what I'm, what else I'm going to do with my life. And so when he got no scholarship offers, he uh, Vietnam was starting up back then, and he realized that if he just hung around Fresno working in his father's raisin company, uh, he was going to get drafted. So his brother had been in the Marines, and he came up with this idea to join the Marine Reserves. And he got his uh, one of his other close friends, Russ Scheidt, uh, who lived across the street from him in Fresno? He got him to go with him, and they joined the Marines. He went into the Marines. He was five foot nine, one hundred and sixty pounds. <laughs> six months later, he came out of the Marines, six foot one, two hundred and ten. It was a miracle. It was, it was just nobody could believe. It. He was a different guy when he came home from the Marines. And at that point in time, he he now he Seaver always had a plan, even going back to when he planned that he was going to become a, a grape farmer and grow and grow grapes and, and make wine. Uh, this time his plan was he always wanted to go to USC, but he knew uh, he was going to have to convince Rod Dato, the great coach there, that he was worthy of his scholarship. So he enrolled in Fresno City College. Uh, it's a junior college there. And uh, his high school coach put him in touch with the coach at Fresno City College and they set up a, a kind of a, a workout. He would come and, and pitch for the guy. And when he got over there, the high school coach had not seen him since before he went into the Marines. He couldn't believe how big he'd gotten. He, and he even right there, he said to the Fresno City coach, he said, I, got, I have a feeling you're going to have some player here. This is not the Tom Seaver I had. <laughs> and sure enough, Seaver starts throwing, he starts throwing 92-mile heaters and sliders and and uh, and they were both amazed at what what he'd become. So he had a great year at Fresno City College, and then uh, he contacted Rod Dato. Actually, Dato had been probably scouting him. And Dato said, yeah, I'm going to hold a scholarship for you, but uh, before I give it to you, I want you to go to Alaska. And Seaver says, Alaska? Why do I have to go to Alaska? And Dato says to him, you're going to love it, kid, believe me. And he wanted to go and play for the 
in the summer wood bat league uh, for the for the Alaska Gold Panthers, and this is a very this is a very famous um, summer league team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played all the all the best quality of uh, co- all college kids and beyond, and some of the best players in baseball at that time all had had a stint at the Alaska Gold with the Alaska Gold Panthers. So Seaver went there. He had a great summer with them. And then he comes back, and Dato uh, said, okay, you got the scholarship. <laughs> it's a great story. And, uh, you know, it, it's funny uh, how uh, it is such a small world that uh, when when you read these books and you realize different things that go on, and uh, there's another story in a book that's uh, fascinating, uh, his his father was a uh, uh, a terrific golfer and uh, also liked a certain drink, scotch and soda. And uh, maybe you could relate that story when it's connected to the uh, famous song. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting story. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with the Kingston Trio, but they were the number one folk singing group of the fifties and sixties. Mm-hmm. And one of their biggest hits was a song called Scotch and Soda. And what happened was, uh, it turned out that Seaver's older sister, Carol was dating Dave guard, briefly dated Dave guard, who was the lead singer of the Kingston trio. And one Thanksgiving, the Kingston trio or, or two of them, uh, Dave guard and Bob Shane were traveling south from San Francisco to Los Angeles, and they stopped off at the Seaver house in Fresno. And uh, they were all sitting around the piano. Seaver's parents were big on music, and I think one of them played the piano. I don't know. But anyway, Seaver's father got out this piece of sheet music, and it was a pencil, you know, pencil sheet music. And they they were telling the the two Dave Gard and Bob Shane, the two guys from the Kingston Trio, that they had gotten this piece of sheet music when they were on their honeymoon. There was a piano player at the lo- at the bar at the hotel around the <laughs> corner from the hotel they stayed at on their honeymoon, and he played this song every night. And they loved the song so much. And he said, he said, "Well, here you can have the sheet music." And he gave it to them, <laughs> and they had it all these years. This was in wow. 1932. Wow! And they had it all these years. And so he started playing it for him, and Dave Garner, Bob Shane, both of them, they said, this is a great song. Can we have this? And Seaver said, Charlie Seaver said, yeah, sure, take it. So he gave him the sheet music. The guy who had given him originally, the guy who wrote the song, he never put his name on it. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so they got, they took the sheet music, and as soon as they got back to Los Angeles, they went right to the copyright office. And Dave Gard put his name on it as the uh, author, of the, uh, as the comp- composer, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, of the, yeah. of, of the song. And um, to this day, um, if you ever look up Scotch and Soda or get an album or by the Kingston Trio, it'll say written by Dave Gard. Dave Gard. Uh, because the guy <laughs> never, they never found out the guy's name. And so... And it just happened that scotch and soda was Seaver's dad's favorite drink. So in the end of the book, um, I tell the story in the beginning of the book, and then it comes full cycle at the end of the book, when Charlie Seaver passed away. He was a legendary golfer. Mm -hmm. He was on the 1932 Walker Cup team. 
And this is another side story. Uh, when Seaver was having this whole thing with M. Donald Grant and this whole contract dispute and, and war with M. Donald Grant, the chairman of the Mets back in the 70s, at one point Grant said to him, how the hell did you get into the Greenwich Country Club? <laughs> and Seaver, always, Seaver told me that story. He says, you believe this guy? Seaver's father was golf royalty, and this guy's questioning how Seaver could be a member of the Greenwich Country Club. So anyway, um, when Charlie passed away, he died in Pebble Beach, and uh, they had him cremated, and Seaver took everybody around uh, uh, to uh, a local a local restaurant down there for the repast. And he took um, he took three of his friends from three of the guys from Fresno, his pals, and he took them upstairs to the bar, and he put the urn with uh, Charlie's ashes on the bar, and he got a bottle of Cutty Sark, and he put that there as well. And then the bartender came around and he said, "What are you guys having?" And Seaver says, "Scotch and soda all around," and they had this little toast to Charlie seaver with the urn and i i actually have a picture of that in the book of seaver toasting his old man and i'm showing the picture now just as we're speaking because it's a it's a great picture uh and a terrific story and and you mentioned m donald grant and the uh course we're all familiar uh, I'm I'm old enough, by the way, to remember Scotch and Soda in the Kingston Trio, so and Cuddy Sock. Um, yeah, but one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, but uh, you mentioned M. Donald Grant, and any of us that uh, remember that uh, evening was, uh, you know, aptly named the Midnight Massacre, and um, uh, and really. Uh, Dick Young had a major part to do with that, and well, yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well, uh, this was a year before I joined the Daily News, but Dick Young was my boss there when I was there, and he was my one of my mentors. And um, the Daily News was unfortunately quite squarely in the middle of this war between Seaver and Grant, um, and. Um, there was a lot of internal uh, anguish at the Daily News at the time because Dick Young was their guy, but the, all the other papers in town were just killing us because of the fact that we were attacking Seaver, letting Dick Young attack Seaver and taking M. Donald Grant's side in this whole contract dispute. It all started with free agency coming into, uh, coming into vogue or whatever you want to say in 1976. Mm -hmm. Seaver never wanted to leave the Mets, even though these other pitchers were coming up on free agency and getting these huge contracts. And uh, he, but he was involved in this rancorous contract negotiation with Grant. And uh, at one point, Grant threatened to trade him and almost did trade him for Don Sutton. That's a whole other story <laughs> that is confirmed in the book. But um, finally, uh, uh, Seaver, and at the same time, Seaver was you know, popping off about the fact that Grant would not spend any money on free agency and uh, try to help the team. And Seaver was complaining about the fact that the Mets were lagging behind on all of this. And it got really nasty. Uh, and uh, we come up to the June 15th, 1977 trading deadline. And a couple of days before the trading deadline, Seaver went over Grant's head 
and worked out a two-year contract with Mrs. D. Relay, who was the daughter of Joan Payson, who had passed away. And uh, Mrs. D. Relay became the he was she was the new Mets ma- matriarch, if you want to say. Mm-hmm. And he worked out a separate two-year deal with her, and it was all set to go, except uh, that day, uh, right after or the next day after, as I write in the book. Dick Young wrote one more column and the 33 words that effectively drove Tom Seaver out of town. And these were the 33 words. Quote, Nolan Ryan is getting more now than Tom Seaver. And that goals Tom because Nancy Seaver and Ruth Ryan are very friendly. And Tom Seaver has long treated Nolan Ryan like a little brother. Unquote. Mm. When Seaver saw that, he went ballistic. Uh, he was, the Mets were in Atlanta and, uh, and the trading deadline was that night and he called, he saw that somebody showed him the article by Young. He called, uh, Arthur Richmond, the Mets PR guy at the time and told him, he says, get Joe McDonald on the phone, who was the general manager and tell him I want out of here. This is it. When he attacks my family, that is too much for me. I am not going to tolerate that. I want out. And that night was the famous Midnight Massacre, and he mm-hmm. was traded. Mets traded him to the Reds, and they also got rid of Dave Kingman, who was in his own contract dispute with Grant. He was the all-time home run leader for the Mets at the time. Right. So they got rid of the two best players, and they were never the same for a long time. Oh no, it was, it was a horrible time. It was painful, and and you could see how upset he was uh, when he got the news and. You know, if Mrs. Payson was still there, I don't think that would ever happen. But uh, like you said, she had no. passed away and left it to her daughters. And um, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Gil Hodges. Uh, Tom uh, always tells um, the best. Well, I mean, he, he respected Gil Hodges, but he, he also he, he loved Gil Hodges. I mean, you could see I remember the. When they had that 50th anniversary, and and he was uh, on the stage talking about uh, Gil Hodges, and he was in tears, practically talking about him. Uh, can you talk a little bit about their relationship? Yeah, well, Gil Hodges was like a second father to him. Uh, he was very close with Gil Hodges, and uh, um, they they hired Hodges uh, in 1967, and um, Seaver had studied him. Uh, uh, they were, they, they got rid of, they fired West Westrom and, uh, there was a long negotiation between the Mets and the Washington senators where Hodges was ma- managing at the time. And Seaver did his homework on Hodges. He knew that this was going to happen. And he realized that Hodges was an ex Marine that got his attention, first of all. And the fact that Hodges was this strong, uh, silent, uh, uh, authoritative, um, just a solid guy. And, uh, and he, 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 you know, he, he studied all of this stuff and he told me at the time, he said, I, I knew right away, this was a guy I wanted to play for. I couldn't wait to play for this guy. And he was not disappointed. Hodges came in and really gave the Mets respectability. He instilled a lot of rules that they really hadn't had in the clubhouse. And he was a disciplinarian. And he was, like I said, he was very, he was an authoritative and he, um, uh, 
he and Seaver bonded quickly. And Seaver told me this one story. Um, uh, it might have been the first year, probably was the first year Hodges was there, 68. And uh, he called he called Seaver into his office. Uh, and Seaver was, he was scared. I mean, he was fearful that uh, he had done something wrong. Why is Gil calling me in his office? So he goes into the office and Gil is sitting at his desk and he's just uh, he's just kind of sitting there. And all of a sudden he says to him, let me ask you something, Tom. When you're on the field, do you ever think of your wife? And he said, yeah. He says, well, do you ever look for her in the stands? And he says, absolutely. I always do. I always look to see where she's sitting. And I just says, oh, okay. I was just, I was just wondering. <laughs> you can go now. So Seaver's telling the story, and he leaves, and he says, what was that all about? So the next day, he calls him in his office again. And and now he's really, now he's really <laughs> concerned. And Hodges is sitting there, and he pulls out, pulls, uh, he opens up his desk drawer and pulls his picture out. And it's a picture of Hodges uh, rounding first base after hitting a home run. And blowing a kiss to his wife, who was sitting, <laughs> Joan Lombardi, and she was a local gal from Brooklyn, right, sitting in the stands. And he said, uh, he said, uh, he explains to him that uh, he had been in a slump, a big slump, and before he went to the ballpark that day, Joan had said, "Hit a home run for me." And somebody <laughs> took a picture of him blowing a kiss to Joan, and he said, "I just wanted you to see this." And Seaver was so moved by this story. Because of, because uh, you know, Seaver and Na and uh, they were inseparable. Seaver mm -hmm. and Nancy. Yes, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> he didn't have a whole lot of respect for players who ran around on the road. Uh, he was Seaver was a he was a strong family man. He believed in he believed in fidelity to your wife and and he and and he got a lot of that from Hodges. And not that he you know that's the way he was brought up. And Hodges. Um, that whole business with Hodges' wife, and he really related to all of that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and Hodges trusted him. Uh, he was, um, I think that's part of the reason why Seaver has so many complete games, because uh, you know it started with Hodges. Hodges was, and Rube Walker, they were really good with the pitchers. They really took care of the pitchers. They went to the five-man rotation before anybody else did. And the reason they did that was because they had so many of these good, hard-throwing young arms on that team, and they wanted to preserve them. And they thought one of the one way that they could do that was not, not, not having them start so many games. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the relationship with Seaver and Hodges was, uh, it was like probably like no other player and manager, really. And of course, when Hodges died, Seaver was devastated. Mm, yeah. uh, and really, his relationship with with the Mets was never the same either. Because um, once Hodges died, Grant moved more and more into power there. Uh, there's a great story that uh, I have in the book that Jack Lang told me. Uh, he was the Mets beat writer at the time, and um, Hodges was the manager. And, uh, it was a game in which uh, Seaver was sitting in the dugout and the batter at the plate swung too hard and his bat flew into the dugout and it looked like it hit Seaver. And everybody was in, the writers were all up in the press box and the announcers. and They saw 
Doc McKenna, the Mets uh, physician, uh, our trainer rather, run run over to Seaver, but then they couldn't see anything more, and they everybody disappeared from view, and they went through the whole game not knowing what happened to Seaver because Hodges had a rule that uh, the press box usually. Today, the press box, the PR guy will call down to the dugout and find out what happened down there. But Hodges had a rule, no one is to call down. I will call you when I feel it, when I deem it necessary. So they went to the whole game not knowing what happened to Seaver. It turned out nothing happened to him. He was okay. <laughs> but Lang, Jack Lang ran into M. Donald Grant in the parking lot the next day outside Chase Stadium, and he, and he, and he brought this up to him, and he said, he says, Don, he says, we can't, Hodges has got, everybody's afraid of Hodges around here. And, you know, th- this was a serious thing. We, we were all left in the dark up there. If something had happened to him, we didn't know what to put on our stories. The announcers didn't know what was going on. And, you know, Hodges is, everybody's afraid of him. And so Grant said to Lang, he says, well, I can't help you, Jack, because I'm afraid of him, too. And so then Lang said, and this is the line that you should, what sums up Donald Grant and what this whole thing was about. Lang says, but Don, Tom Seaver's the franchise here. And Grant looks at him and admonishes him, and he says, don't you ever call Tom Seaver the franchise. Mm. Mrs. Payson and I are the franchise here. Okay. I, I guess in the early days, people would go to see Mrs. Payson sitting uh, along the dugout, but later on, uh, not so much once they started to win. Um, so he he got traded, goes to Cincinnati, uh, gets to be good friends with Johnny Bench. And when you look back on his career, um, the, the teams that he played with, for the most part, he had some of the greatest catchers Really, two Hall of Famers and, and one that, if he hit a little more, probably could have been their Hall of Fame. I'm talking about Jerry Grody. Um, uh, it really is amazing that, that uh, the I don't know if you want to call it the luck or the timing he had, but did play for some of the, with some of the greatest catches of all time. Well, yeah, I mean, Grody was his favorite with the Mets, obviously, and they teamed up on a lot of great games together. And then he goes to the Reds, he has Johnny Bench, and then later he goes to the White Sox and he had Carlton Fisk, and he has a close he had a close relationship with all three of those mm-hmm. guys, especially Bench and Fisk, because he was in the Hall of Fame with both of them. Right. And, um, and of course, Fisk caught his 300th game at Yankee Stadium, and... He always got on bench because bench did not catch his no hitter in Cincinnati. He was hurt when that ha- <laughs> when that happened, and uh, the backup catcher Don Warner was the one who was a battery mate for the for the no hitter, and he never let bench forget that. <laughs> well, he was a bit of a prankster and and uh, uh, a chopbuster, if you will, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. He was definitely that, and. Um, uh, he took a lot of pride in that, uh, <laughs> and I was I was the brunt of a lot of it. I can tell you that. <laughs> and he comes back to the Mets, and uh, uh, as you said, he he left. But uh, you write about a story where he actually talked to you at one point about uh, talking to the Yankees about a trading for him. Yeah, well, um, like I said, we become not 
close friends, but we'd become good friends. And, uh, we would talk on the phone periodically. And, um, after uh, he went to the White Sox and I was the one that told him he was going to the White Sox, <laughs> um, he had two pretty good years there. And then, um, in 86, uh, he started, you know, it was like, what, what more do I have to prove? The White Sox were not a good team there. Uh, by then they were struggling and he was struggling as well and he was lonely and he was homesick and um, so he called me on the phone and he said to me uh, he said do you think you could talk to uh, George about trying to get me traded to the Yankees tell him that I really want to finish my career with the Yankees by George he meant of course Steinbrenner right and I said <laughs> well I said I'll I'll get I'll, I'll get he said, Hawk Harrelson, who was the general manager of the White Sox, he said, I think Hawk has called the Mets and they're not interested. So it's either I'm going to be stuck here. So I said, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give him a call. Well, I thought this was right up George's alley. This is right out of his playbook. The Mets were on their way to going to the World Series in 86. Right. And here's a task for George to upstage that by bringing Tom Seaver back to New York as a Yankee. Uh, this uh, this was right out of his playbook, and I was shocked, or, or really surprised anyway, that he was only lukewarm to the idea. Wow. And, um, and there was a time uh, during that period that I was kind of the middleman between trade talks between Harrelson and George. I was going back and forth between the two of them, trying to make this deal happen <laughs> for Tom. And I'm also <laughs> supposed to be a reporter for the Daily News. <laughs> you didn't know you were an agent. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm doing this as a favor to Tom. And finally, George, the whole trade got hung up on a shortstop named Carlos Martinez. He was a big, tall, six foot six Venezuelan. And he was one of the Yankees' top prospects because he was a power-hitting shortstop. The only problem was all the scouts had told me that he's never going to be remaining at shortstop. He's just too big for the mm -hmm. position. And he'll wind up being a first baseman where his power will be negated. Um, so uh, George is telling me, he says, I can't give up this Martinez kid. Hawk is trying to steal him from me. And I said, George, I said, this is Tom Seaver here. <laughs> My God, what? how can you let this deal hung up on a, on a shortstop who's not going to be a shortstop by the time he gets to the big leagues? And he said, well, I don't know. I just don't know if I can do this deal. And a couple of days later, Hawk called me back and he said, I'm sorry, Billy, but we're not going to be able to do this deal. Yeah. George will not give up Martinez. And they wound up trading him to the Red Sox for crazy horse Steve Lyons. <laughs> uh, and that's where he, and ironically, his last day in the big leagues was um, sitting on the bench in the, in the Red Sox bench in the 86 World Series watching the Mets come back and win the World Series. Yeah, He's a spectator on the bench for the Red Sox. I, it it was a shame that the Mets didn't get him because he would have fit in very well with that team, I think. And and uh, well, Davey Johnson didn't want him. Uh, oh. You know, they already had. You know, they were loaded with pitching. They had yeah, Gooden and yeah. Darling and Fernandez and Rita. And Davey Johnson just didn't want him. I think he thought he would be a distraction or whatever. Well, so Cash and Cash and wanted him because you know. He was the one that left him unprotected. Right. And this was going to be an opportunity <laughs> for him to atone to the fans by bringing Seaver back and having part of the 86 team. But Davey Johnston was adamant. He didn't want him. And so Frank had to do what his manager wanted. Yeah. 
Well, uh, the book is terrific. There's so many other stories in there about visits to the mound that I don't want to give everything away and talk to the book. But uh, uh, I, I do have a couple more questions. And um, one of it was, uh, he was, it was great to see him come in Cloche Stadium. And that was apropos. And it also was great to see him open City Field. But he was not. He was not happy about that aspect, was he? No, he wasn't. Um, and this is all part of the, uh, I, I don't think it was common knowledge. I know it wasn't common knowledge by Mets fans that he had, he had, he was estranged from the Mets and he never really, he never really ended that estrangement. He was, um, to his dying day, uh, he had very little use for the Mets and it was really, it was really sad, but uh, there were so many things that happened. I mean, you know, the whole damn Donald Grant thing, he got over that. He somewhat got over Frank leaving him unprotected, but he never felt appreciated by the Mets, especially, uh, the new, the, the, when Fred Wilpon and Jeff Wilpon took over the team. Uh, he, there was a real problem between the, uh, Seaver and the Wilpons. Mm. And he never got over the fact that, um, uh, he ju- he just never felt that they appreciated the Mets' history, and in particular him. Uh, and so I don't want to get into the whole ending of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want people to read the book oh, to know yeah, what yeah. really happened. The straw that broke, the final straw for him. Yeah. But it, it was when he walked into City Field. Yeah. Uh, well, I said it's, it's a terrific book, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the current Mets and the uh, Cohen ownership and the Robinson Cano issue. Could you just comment on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I think, um, I think uh, Steve Cohen got a early happy Hanukkah present. And, uh, <laughs> Cano tested positive and, <laughs> and uh, to the tune of $23 million. That's a nice present. <laughs> so, um, I think Steve Cohen's going to be a great owner for them. Uh, his press conference uh, a couple of weeks ago or last week, whenever it was, it was tremendous. I never saw a press conference like that from an owner. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think uh, I was interested to see where he said one of the things he's doing is bringing back old timers day. If Sieber were alive today, he would say right away, he's finally an owner who was starting to appreciate the Mets history. Right. Uh, because uh, it really is was long overdue, and uh, I think it's going to be a great thing for the Mets. I mean, they got an owner who's going to spend money, and uh, but not, but I believe not recklessly. Right. Uh, right. Somebody told me, uh, you know, everybody thinks Cohen's going to spend like a drunken sailor. Says, remember, this is a guy who made his billions, value, uh, knowing the value of things, <laughs> and he says, Steve, <laughs> this guy told me, he says, Steve Cohen is not stupid. He's not going to be like some of these other owners and just, you know, give out these ridiculous contracts right. because he has the money. And and Sandy Alderson at that press conference uh, seemed like a, a whole different guy, like a, a new, like he's reborn again. Uh, he seemed uh, maybe he's healthier than the last time we saw him, but uh, to me, this is my observation. I, I you know. Um, uh, I think the one thing you should have noticed, I don't know if you did, I noticed it. He didn't have any handcuffs on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
It's true. That's. I mean, this is a whole different deal for Sandy. I mean, he can actually be a general manager, or, or he can actually run the baseball operations without any interference and without any hindrance from the ownership. Now, now the Robinson Cano thing, does that in any way void his contract or can it have any effect on his contract other than losing a year uh, pay? Uh, does it violate the, uh, any of the clauses at all? Would you happen to know that? Yeah, well, no, he can... He can come back in 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anybody's going to want him. And I have a feeling that Steve Cohen will probably just eat the rest. Of it. It's a lot of money. It's $48 million or something like that. But, but uh, no, he's free to come back. Uh, but I doubt if anybody's going to want a 39-year-old guy who's a two-time drug offender. Yeah. Uh, and um, so he'll get his money and go away. But what a shame. Yeah, uh, and... You know, uh, I would I would think uh, you're more you're of course involved in in this more than I am, but I would think that would kill his Hall of Fame uh, uh, oh, chances yeah. completely two times. Yep, and uh, yep. you know, and now you got to wonder whether he was doing it in the Yankees. Well, uh, I think that's uh, that's a strong suspicion. Now you're right. <laughs> I mean, so. I think a, I don't think a lot of people were going to vote for him anyway before this happened because yeah. of that very reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's a crazy world, but uh, thankfully, uh, uh, you know, uh, things are going to straighten out. Will we have baseball this year? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I'm, I think we're all kind of excited about these vaccines, and uh, if they really do start giving out vaccines in December and we'll get into January and February. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we can actually get back to a sense of normalcy uh, by the time a spring training rolls around or at least sort of a sense of normalcy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I fully expect that we're going to have a season. Well, that's great. That's good news for everybody out there. The book is Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life. Uh, it is available for pre-order, I believe, on Amazon and other fine book sites. Please go pick it up. It's a terrific book if you love Tom Seaver and you're a Met fan. And you young Met fans out there, pick this book up and read about the history of the Mets. Because if you want to be a true fan, I think you have to know the history of the team. Bill Madden, thank you so much for your time. Uh, good luck with the book. It, it's a terrific book. Okay, my pleasure. Okay, and I'll be back right after this. Baseball and BBQ, your place for interesting baseball talk, opinions, and history. Baseball and BBQ, your place for barbecue recipes, tips, and interviews from the world of barbecue. If you like baseball and if you like barbecue, then tune in to Baseball and BBQ. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and BaseballTalkRadio.com. Wouldn't it be great if you could get a Ph.D. in life through baseball? Welcome to Baseball Ph.D., a tour company for your brain. 30 major league teams, 100 places to see. Let's touch them all as we make the road trip of a lifetime.
check out my Twitter page at Mets Musings One, and check out a Facebook group. It's at Facebook.com/slash Mets Musings. Go check it out, and don't forget to call the hotline. It's five one six. 619-6341. Okay, and we're back. And I uh, hope you enjoyed that uh, uh, guest, Bill Madden. It is a terrific book uh, on Tom Seaver, the greatest Met of all time. And uh, go pick it up. It makes a great holiday gift for any Met fan out there uh enjoy it uh so uh a lot of news going on that we covered and and spoke to bill madden it's kind of a long show so i don't want to drag it out any longer but uh uh just remember that uh holidays are coming be good to one another uh be safe wear a mask uh you know social distance, all of that nice stuff. And that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank my guest, Bill Madden, once again for taking time out and coming on the show. And I want to thank you all for listening. And uh, don't f- forget to subscribe on iTunes or on uh, uh, yeah, what else? Uh, YouTube. Uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to the podcast or watch the podcast. Yes, we're also on YouTube. So uh, go there and subscribe. I apologize for the video issue. Still working out a couple of new programs. Uh, so, so bear with me if you're watching the video version. It'll get there. Just need some fine tuning. Uh, we'll get there, though. So, uh, uh, you know, just bear with me. And until next time, I don't know if there'll be a show next week because it is Thanksgiving. Have a happy Thanksgiving if I don't see you. And until next time, remember to keep the faith, stay optimistic, and let's go Mets. And I'll talk to you next time on another edition of Mets Music.